For those of you who are new here, we are Heights Christian Church. One of the things that we do here at Heights is that we go through the Bible every five years together as a congregation. And that's a little unusual. So how do we do that? Well, we do that. We have a couple ways that you can participate with us. Number one is if you go to the information desk, there is a schedule of reading that we're doing as a congregation that you can be a part of. We read together six days a week. And that schedule is there for you to follow along with us. It goes all the way through the end of the year so you know exactly what we're reading and when we're reading it. Um, and the other way that you can go along with us is you can go to our YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com backslash Heights Christian Church. And on that, uh, on that page, and you click the subscribe and the bell for notifications, you will get um, devotionals that are based upon our readings. We actually do the entire reading for the day, and we do devotionals that help bring a practicality toward the word of God so we have an understanding of it better. So we do that six days a week, Monday through Saturday. And then on Sunday, the sermon that we have in whole or in part is from those uh, passages of scripture. And so how many of you guys did the reading this week? Uh, Raise your hand. It is a trick question. There wasn't any reading this week. So... Those of you raising your hand, like, you might be a week behind or something like that. I don't know, but, uh, so, so yeah, like, we just saw no hands going up. Yeah, we, we're doing, actually, we're in between books right now, and we're setting up this last section for the rest of the year. And so we're going to be previewing today, it'll be an introduction to the books of Deuteronomy and Romans, and that's going to be through a sermon that is titled, The Power of Repetition. Um, parents, those of you who are parents, raise your hand. If you're a parent of a teenager, raise your hand. Everybody in the congregation needs to look at these people and pray for these people, okay? Let me tell you why right now. If you're a parent of a teenager, you are in an impossible situation. Here's your impossible situation. Parents, you will understand this. If you've had teenagers before and they've grown out of this phase, you'll understand this as well. If you're a parent of a teenager, you you face an impossible task. Here's your impossible task. You repeat yourself a lot. You know why you repeat yourself a lot? Because you want your kids to listen, and you have important things that you want them to get. Now, when it comes to chores, here's the interesting dilemma. We assign chores for our kids, do we not? We have, here's your list of chores. This is what we would like you to do. And here's the interesting dilemma that parents find themselves in with their teenage son or their teenage daughter. We have established that we have chores for you to do. Here is the list of chores that you are to do. We've handed it out to you to try and do. If we say nothing at all, nothing gets done. Amen? Amen. If we go to our children and then say to them, hey, I want you to make sure that you get these chores done, inevitably, we will get some response like this, at least some of the time. You know, I was already planning on doing that today. And now that you've said it, I don't feel like doing it. How many of you have faced that as parents? How many of you remember as teenagers being that child? There is a tremendous dilemma when it comes to the power of repetition, 
right? We want to repeat those things that are important. And if somebody tells us that with something we've heard 10,000 times before because of our sinful human nature, it's the very thing we don't want to do. Now we get a little understanding of what it means to be God, don't we? Right? Trust me, you guys aren't God, but we can feel that frustration, right? Oh, maybe this is why Israel was so bad at following God. And that's what we're going to be looking at when we look at Deuteronomy and when we look at Romans. Deuteronomy is a very interesting book. Deuteronomy comes from the Greek. It means copy or repetition. Deuteronomy is often translated as second law or repeated law. And it's easy to understand why. We start going through Deuteronomy. You're going to start looking at the history of Israel. We've just gone through Exodus together and Leviticus and Numbers together. You're going to see lots of repetition from the second half of Exodus on as Moses is recounting the events that have happened up until that point. He's going to recount the law being passed down. He's going to recount why those laws existed. He's going to recount their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. You're going to get to your mind going like, wait a second, haven't we gone through this all before? Didn't we just get done talking about all of this? You know, in Scripture, repetition is kind of an exclamation point. I'm sure you guys have heard me say that before. That whenever somebody repeats something in the scripture, it's like, say, it's like, pay attention to this. It's like us as parents, we're saying it again because it's important, right? Remember, one of my favorite passages of all of scripture that speaks on this repetition is something that Jesus talked about in John chapter 14. So in John chapter 14, we see Jesus talk about this relationship between love and obedience, Right? And there's always this dilemma as far as Christians are go. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. But Jesus makes it so very clear that obedience to him is equated to love to him. And he makes no doubt about it in the most repeated phrase that he does throughout the scripture. So turn with me real quick. John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. We're going to read 10 verses together. And Jesus says this, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will, make our, we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. And so right here in scripture, this huge exclamation point in 10 verses, 
Jesus repeats the same phrase four times, three in the positive and one in the negative. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. He who loves me will obey my commands. Me and my father will come and make our home in him. He who does not love me will not obey my commands. You think Jesus was trying to get a point across? You think Jesus was trying to say that love without obedience is not really love? It doesn't equate the idea that we are saved by our own actions, but Jesus wasn't saying that that was salvation. He's saying that that was love. So if you think that you can love Jesus and disobey him, Jesus seems to say pretty emphatically otherwise. But that's the way that we see repetition happen in the Scripture. But I think we're, we're lost on just how much repetition happens in the scriptures. So I want to kind of give you a rundown that I just wrote real quick of some of these repetitions of large swaths of scripture that are repeated throughout the reading of the Bible. Exodus through Numbers is repeated in Deuteronomy. We've stated that already. We're going to see a lot of what we've already read earlier this year. We're going to be like, I've done this before. That's good. God wants the people of Israel to remember, and he wants us to remember. So it's in there again. 2 Samuel through 2 Kings is repeated from the southern kingdom's perspective in the kings of Judah in 1 and 2 Chronicles. We see a repeat of all of those events that are happening there. Much of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and the history of Israel, which is Joshua through Esther in your Bible, in the Old Testament, is repeated throughout the Psalms. If you start reading the Psalms, there are all these references to Abraham and what he's done and and what God has done for the people of Israel and talking about their deliverance from Egypt and talking about how he established David as king. All of those things have been, you can read through the Psalms, and still hear repeats of these things. As a matter of fact, many of these Psalms are based in the subscript on historical events that happen within the context of the history. So you know exactly when this Psalm was written and who did it. Many of the Proverbs in Proverbs are repeated. If you've read Proverbs, how many of you ever done like the 31-day challenge where you read Proverbs in 31 days? You go through and then after a while, some of those sound like, wait, that sounded like what I read before. And this, this sounded like this. And this one sounded like this. That's because they, they are. They're either very similar or straight up repeats, right? There's a lot of wisdom that God is saying, pay attention to this one. Pay, no, this, not, not this, 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 right? The Old Testament prophets repeating what was found in the Pentateuch. We see them referencing it all the time. The Gospels. We have four different accounts of the Gospels. And yet, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are called synoptic Gospels. Why? They seem to go over many of the same things, many of the same teachings, many of the same parables, many of the same accounts. And so when we read the Gospels, we read four accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That was an awesome scream back there. She was, pretty, she was pretty excited about that four gospel account, okay? You should be too. The Pauline epistles often repeat from one book to another. Romans is a larger extrapolation from Galatians. If you read Galatians and then you read Romans, you're like, dude, there's, there's a lot that's being said that was 
already said, right? We can look at First and Second Corinthians, the latter referencing the former. In these, in these things that have happened. So you have reference to things that have happened in 1 Corinthians that are mentioned in 2 Corinthians. Like, oh, I kind of remember that from back here. This is what he's referencing. When we look at Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, these letters written to the churches that are there, that Paul writes there, we find that his, the leading of the Holy Spirit and the advice that he gives each of these churches are almost identical in many cases. We see a lot of the same things that are over and over and over again repeated. As a matter of fact, all of those three books in particular spend the first half of those epistles talking about the greatness of God and end with the practical outworking of what it means if this is who Jesus is, this is what it means for us as believers. We go from there and we look at the sameness of the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and we look at the advice given to those who are leading the church, who have been left behind to lead these other churches, are oftentimes the same in establishing leadership and how that accountability should be set up. It doesn't deviate from one person to another. Even the prophetic utterances that we see in First and Second Thessalonians, when we look at Second Timothy, we see a lot of the same things that are being mentioned, talking about what's going to happen in the end and how these things are going to take place. Paul is very consistent. We see James quoting Jesus, which is appropriate since James is Jesus' half-brother. We see First and Second Peter proclaiming that their, that their whole epistles are merely reminders of what they had already been taught. You can read it right there in the epistle. These two things I have written for you as way of reminder. In other words, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm repeating stuff that I've already said. I'm just writing it down. It's like a list. Second Peter and Jude. Oh my goodness, you could read them side by side. We actually did that in life group the other day, which was awesome. You can read them side by side and you're just like, wow. There's no doubt that Jude is referencing 2 Peter all throughout. It's pretty amazing. And then we go to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we look at the writing style and the things that are mentioned there. And we realize that there are a lot of that, that repetition that we hear from the Gospel of John. And finally, Revelation goes back to a lot of the Old Testament prophets, quoting them and giving greater context so that we understand what's happening there. In other words, when we look at the whole of the Bible, to read the Bible once is to receive much of the Word of God multiple times. If repetition is God's exclamation point, it's kind of like God is saying, all of His Word is important. When you guys read it, you're going to realize, I didn't read it just once. I read it so many times. Abraham is referenced all throughout Old Testament and New Testament. We see all of this happening throughout. And so when we go back to the book of Deuteronomy, recognizing that it is itself a repetition. It's meant to be a repetition. It's a reestablishment for the people of Israel as they are about to go in and conquer the land of promise. It's a recollection of everything that is taken place up to this point so they can trust the promises of God and have these things established. Deuteronomy is a repeat of the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, the wanderings in the desert, and the regiving of the law. The Pentateuch is the basis for the civilization of the people of Israel. 
It's where the promise of God for a deliverer and the law of God has its origin. It is hearkened back to throughout the history of Israel. It is the basis for which the poetry and the songs of Israel derive its meaning. It's the foundation for the prophets and their encouragements and denunciations and judgments against the people of Israel. So let's take an example and see how that really looks like, right? If, if Deuteronomy is this reestablishment of the law and the law is the basis for which we see prophecy and other things take place, how did that really work out? How does this kind of all work together? Let's take a look real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 25 through 31. Lots of Bible reading today. I mean, it's good. We're here in the, in the Word of God, and that's an awesome thing because we want God's Word to speak for itself, right? All right, so Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 25. After you have had children and grandchildren have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and provoking Him to anger... I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, You will find him if you look for him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And when you're in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with which your forefathers, uh, with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. So this is establishing, this is what God says. I want you following me. If you're not following me, then I'm going to cast you out. And you're going to find yourself in places where you're worshiping false idols. And until you turn around from worshiping these false idols and come back to me with all of your heart and with all of your soul, when you do that, I will restore you. Now, consider this passage of Scripture as it comes to Isaiah's complaint in chapter 44. We're going to look at Isaiah 44. And I want you to hear the echo of this this passage right here. Every bit of it is there. We see both the the promise of deportation, going away, and reconciliation based upon idol worship. So let's check it out together. Isaiah 44, we're reading the whole chapter. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, this is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in the meadow, like poplar trees, by flowing streams. And one will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand the Lord's and will take the name Israel. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. 
Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there's no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. And he shapes an idol with hammers and he forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker and he roughs it out with chisels and marks on it with compasses and he shapes it in the form of a man, a man in all of his glory that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak and he let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and in the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks and bakes bread. And he also fashions a god and worships it. And he makes an idol and bows to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. And he also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. The rest he makes a god. From the rest he makes a god. His idol. He bows down to it and worships. And he prays to it. And he says, Save me. You're my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. And their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud. Your sins like the morning mist return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy. O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all you trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets, who makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into non who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. And so we see a specificity a prophecy based in Deuteronomy. The specificity says, this is what happens. You're going to bow down and worship idols who can neither eat, nor see, nor feel, nor hear. 
And Isaiah, in biting commentary before the Lord, says, how, how can you not see these people know nothing? They have made an idol. Half of it, they make an idol, and they, they, they use the, the wood for burning and making everything warm. And the other half, they're like, save me, save me. Like, how can they not see? Will they return to me so that I can restore them back to their land? And this happened before the punishment was brought upon the land of Judah. Literally 150 years before it was brought upon the land of Judah. And God is not just talking about their punishment because of what they're worshiping. He's talking about their restoration and by whose hand it will come by. When their heart has been restored to God. Showing that he's fulfilling his promise. But its basis is in the law. And that's important to know. The reference concerning the prophets are found in the law. That's what they're hearkening back to. So this leads us to another understanding found throughout the scriptures. It's this idea of progressive revelation. Now, I know I've mentioned up here about progressive Christianity. I want to let you know they're not the same thing. Okay? I've said up here before, we'll say it again, progressive Christianity is neither progressive nor Christian. It's just not. It tries to do away with the Word of God, saying we have progressed beyond what the Word of God says. Progressive revelation is not that at all. And so I want to read a definition, and I believe a good one, of progressive revelation from Loganeer Ministries so that we got, kind of get an understanding of what progressive revelation is, how it works itself out in the Scriptures, what we see. Christians have long affirmed that this creator did not reveal himself to human beings all at once. And this helps to account for many of the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Scripture teaches what is often called progressive revelation. Simply put, this means that God revealed himself to his people over many centuries, periodically giving new information that built on but did not contradict or deny what came before. For example, the Lord spoke to Abraham and gave him the promise of salvation. Later, he spoke to Israel through Moses, the old covenant mediator, adding the law, which did not overturn the promise, but rather reinforced Israel's hope in the promise. After that, the prophets gave more revelation regarding God. And then the Lord's final revelation came in his incarnation of his son and the apostolic writings that explain his person and work. Progressive revelation means that while scripture application to old covenant believers is different in some ways from its application to new covenant believers, we do not reject any of God's word. It reveals one message of salvation that we cannot fully grasp unless we consider the whole of the Bible. Progressive revelation means that we who live in the new covenant era are blessed to know more about God's plan and its outworking than those who lived under the old covenant. That does not mean, however, that we ignore the old covenant revelation, for scripture cannot be broken. We need the Old Testament as much as we need the New Testament to know our creator and to know how to love and obey him. And so this is important to understand, and this is something that it's Like when you go into the Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 3 and we see the curse that's given to to the snake that prophesies the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It says, you know, the woman will have a seed and her seed will crush the head of the serpent. He will bite, he will bite his heel. You know, bruises heel, and 
he will, and the sun will crush his head. That's the earliest revelation. You know what we don't get in Genesis? We don't get the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. These are later details of the same event. God has revealed it initially in that small line in Genesis 3.15. And yet we see a progression of revelation of how that will actually unfold as the scripture is laid out. As time goes on, God reveals more details. He's not changing anything. Genesis 3.15 is still just as true. That's what Jesus did. But we get more information as time goes on and through the incarnation of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So let's take a look at this because Scripture attests to this as well. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 3. So Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15, it says this. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The Scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people. But and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends upon the law, then it no longer depends upon a promise. But God, in His grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the seed to whom the promise referred had come, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. And a mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Do you see how Paul is saying that the promise and the law are not in conflict for one another? They actually build upon one another through the revelation of Jesus Christ and the faith that you and I should have in him. This is that progressive revelation that is there as a matter of fact hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 put it this way long ago and many times and in many ways god spoke through our to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world so guess what we have the prophets made more sure because jesus has come because he is the subject of their prophecy We're getting a clearer picture all the time, not a different picture. And that's very important for us to know. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, it says this, concerning this salvation, 
The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. You see what Peter is saying? The prophets longed to understand fully the prophecies God was giving them through the Spirit. They didn't understand all of it. They knew that they were writing that down for a future that they weren't going to see, that God was going to bring into fruition. It happened through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why he said that gospel that has been proclaimed to you, we can speak more fully concerning those things the prophets had revealed. This progressive revelation extends to those things that have not yet been fulfilled. We have other things that haven't happened yet. Because prophecy didn't end just with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There's a promise of a second coming. That Jesus is coming back and he's going to fulfill what he has promised. To bring us to be with him forever in heaven together. Amen. Right? I'm excited about that. Three of you are excited about that too. That's awesome. All right, sweet. Um. But it's interesting because you guys remember that passage that we look back in Isaiah? Let's look at that Isaiah 44 passage again. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. I think this is very important because there is stuff here that you need to understand. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. And so God establishes himself as creator. He establishes himself as king and redeemer. He establishes himself as the only one who knows the future from right there because that's what he's going to proclaim. Let's take the opening words of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John on the island of Patmos, starting in verse 9 in chapter 1. Let's take a look at that. I think you're going to be surprised with some stuff here. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and he said, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. 
I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Did you guys catch that? There's a lot that's said right there, but did you guys catch how Jesus introduced himself to John when he fell down on the ground and he placed his hand on them and he says, I am the first and the last. I was dead and now I'm alive forever and ever. He took the name that belonged only to God, that title of God in Isaiah 44. This is what he's referencing. Isaiah 44 is what is being referenced by Jesus as he introduces himself, reintroduces himself to John. I am the first. I am the last. I was dead. I am alive forever. And I'm going to tell you what is to come. Something only God can do. This is how God introduced himself to the people of Israel in Isaiah 44. This is the name Jesus takes for himself, letting him know, I am God. Right there in Revelation, and that's no vert, not a covert reference, because it comes straight from the scriptures, from a reference that is there, this progressive revelation that is there. Why is this important? Because those who would have a different understanding of who Jesus is, say Jehovah's Witnesses, who love, number one, the, the, the end time study of Revelation, and number two, they believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel. Jesus didn't say he was Michael the archangel. Jesus claimed the name of God. Isaiah 44, I am the first and the last. I'm the one who knows the future. Come see who can tell the future. Jesus is claiming, that's me. I'm the first and the last. I was dead. I am alive forever and ever. Come and I will show you what is and what will come. This progressive revelation is so important for us to understand, even concerning the claims of Jesus Christ as it pertains to the Old Testament God. He says, I'm him. When you've seen the Father, you've seen me. He really means it. To try to understand the New Testament or Jesus, for that matter, without an understanding of the Old Testament that proclaims him, is to cut off any meaningful understanding of what God has prepared for us through the promise of Jesus' coming. His prophesied death and resurrection and ensuing deliverance from sin and death. In other words, there's no such thing as a New Testament Christian. If you've ever heard that before, it needs to be out of your vocabulary. The entirety of the word of God proclaims the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why we go through the word of God together. Where Deuteronomy seeks to repeat for the people of Israel the promise of God and the law established for God's people, Romans seeks to show Jesus as the fulfillment of both the law and the promise. This is done through the nature of progressive revelation throughout the scriptures. As a matter of fact, the word law is found more in Romans than any other other book of the Bible. Did you know that? You would have thought, well, it's Deuteronomy because that's the law. Nope. As a matter of fact, there's 20 more references in the smaller book of Romans concerning the law than there is in Deuteronomy. 53 references to the law. The law is the subject of the book of Romans and how it intersects 
with believers in Jesus Christ. The major theme of the book is to show how the law is upheld and fulfilled through the death and resurrection of Jesus. If we go to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter because the purpose of why Paul is writing the people in Rome is to help them understand the association of the law with those who are believers in Jesus Christ. And he comes to an interesting conclusion, one that a New Testament Christian wouldn't get, but one who respects the entirety of the Word of God will more fully understand, starting in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as, to be the ju- so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On observing the law? No, but on faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Do you see the connection? The connection for us as believers in Christ is that the law draws us to understand our need for Jesus, a sacrifice for our sins that God had provided and shown through the promise and through the prophets that was going to come through Jesus Christ. So when we look at the law, we're looking at something that points to our terrible need and our need for a Savior that is fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus through this progressive revelation of God in the prophets. Is that not an amazing thing to see? And that by having faith in Jesus, we're not ignoring the law, we're actually upholding it. Wow, that's an amazing thing to think about, right? It makes us look at what we're going to see in Deuteronomy in a whole different light, I hope, as believers in Jesus Christ. So as we begin this last portion of the year through the study of the repeated law and the one who would fulfill the law, Let's make sure that just because God's repeated it over and over again, we're not going to be like angsty teenagers. Read the Bible and we see that he says this over and over and over again, and therefore we can just ignore it, not do it, not follow the, the straight arrow that points to the cross and our need for Jesus Christ and the redemption that's found in him. 
We repeat things over and over again because they're important. And we don't want those things lost on the one for whom the message is conveyed. God repeated most the promise of his coming and returning son. Let's make sure that we don't forget that same message. Would you stand with us? My prayer is that as we walk through this together, you guys are going to see the glory of God in a whole different way. As we walk through the law and realize that the end of the law points to Jesus. The fulfillment of the promise is found in Jesus. And our faith upholds the law because we point to all that God has done and say that he is good, he is righteous, he is true, and Jesus is Lord. If you don't know that Jesus, we invite you to come today. We're going to have our elders up front for you to pray for any need, great or small. And we, ta- we want you to come and take advantage of that. So elders, you'll just come on front. They're here for you, for prayer, for anything. Most importantly, if you don't know Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law, the one who is the promise that God fulfilled through him and our hope of redemption. If you don't know him, you come. God, thank you so much for this day and this time, dear Heavenly Father. Thank you that we're going to be on this journey of understanding the connection between the law and the grace that's given in Jesus Christ. To know that the law and the promise are not in contradiction. The Old Testament and New Testament are not contradictions, but rather fuller revelations of one another for the one message from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation that Jesus is Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the promise, for the redemption through his blood and for the promise of his coming in Jesus' name. Amen.